The great philosopher Kierkegaard said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Looking back only results in learning for people who have that time to think. And many of us are so busy with day-to-day demands that we rarely have time to reflect. And that's why we started What I Wish I Knew. It's for those moments when you realize that just a bit of insight might have come in handy if you had it in advance. I'm Mike Irwin. And I'm Simon Dore. So we talk with people from all walks of life, from startup entrepreneurs to Fortune 500 CEOs, professional athletes to weekend warriors, from artists and to designers, to even engineers who became designers. From those who dream to those who dream and actually do. They all have three things in common. None are perfect. All are humble and each have truly incredible learnings. In what I wish I knew, they share these lessons with you. Join us at whatiwishanewshow.com. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And please share and subscribe to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw. Welcome to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw. We're excited today because we have an outlier. We have uh, Sean Parr with us who has uh, done so many things. He's, he's governor and CEO of Bulldog Drummond, which is an innovation um, and design company. That, but that innovation design is not just the visual aspect, but the structural and the leadership as well. And so his client list includes the likes of Adidas and Campbell's and Diageo and Heineken, Mattel, Nike, Starbucks. There's a good chance that any brand that you interact with today is one that Sean Parr has touched. And um, touched in really profound ways. So um, Sean Parr is an extraordinary individual and serves on the boards of directors of the Honest Kitchen um, Feed Projects, Kitchens for Good. He is co-founder of the Youth School, which seeks to shape the way that young people sort of decide to live their lives. Um, and he kind of lives himself at the intersection of, of, of purpose and meaning in what he does for a living and how he lives his life. So welcome to what I wish I knew, Governor. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Simon. Appreciate it. So tell us, Sean, how, how does a guy like you land in San Diego, end up doing this kind of work? Is it something that if we had met, you know, 18-year-old or 20-year-old Sean Parr, would he be surprised where you sit today? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, that, um, you know, arrogant, uh, naive... Um, driven human being was was <laughs> would certainly be surprised. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I think how people change from teens to you know every every decade that goes by, you change. But when you look back, it's like wow. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in London um, and uh, was a was a Londoner through and through, and um, you know. Now I'm a proud Californian 30 plus years later. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I thank, you know, thank, uh, thank goodness for, for where I'm at and who I'm with and the journey that I've been on. Um, so I suppose takeaway there is, you know, life can be amazingly rich. You know, you've got no idea what's ahead, which is part of the exciting, you know, journey that we go on. So when you jumped off in, in your career at the start, what were you doing and, and how did that 
you know, sort of serve the early part of your life? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. So um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be an officer in the army um, and, uh, you know, got similarly re rejected by the, the, the people at Sandhurst. Um, you know, thought I wanted to be an accountant. Um, that didn't work out. Um, but I ended up uh, so starting at the start of my career was uh, in uh, sales and marketing for a financial institution. Um, ended up running a sales team, ended up uh, working with uh, our ad agency, leapt from there into running the ad agency at a young age. And uh, that was sort of the start. And, uh, you know, I, I met my American wife in London um, in the, uh, the early 1820s. And, um, you know, necessity was the mother of invention. And that's sort of how I started my career. It wasn't deliberate. It wasn't out of passion. And that's actually what I wanted to do. Um, I got here in, I don't know, 91. And uh, what am I going to do? So that's, that's where I started. What made you jump, Sean? Uh, from the kind of corporate finance world over? Well, it, it was uh, um, running a team um, and, uh, you know, being connected to creating commercial value was, you know, running a sales organization and having a link into marketing, um, working with a, with a small ad agency that needed to grow, um, I think, you know, we enjoyed working together and uh, that was really, it was relational more than anything else. It wasn't based on my talent. It was, I think I was pretty good with people back then and they had a need to grow. They saw this cocky, you know, early twenties, you know, go-getter who thought he wanted to be a millionaire and drive a Ferrari. So that's what, <laughs> that's where it started. <laughs> but I mean, in, you know, you moved into, I guess, an unknown in, in some respects, even though you were, I guess you described yourself as um, overly confident, but it was still an unknown, yeah, from a world where you were relatively safe, I guess? Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely. And I think when you're younger, I think you were, you were either terribly naive or you're cocky or you're confident that you can do anything. And I think one of the things I've taken away through the last 30 years in business is um, if you put your mind to something, uh, you can accomplish anything. Um, and if you allow things to get in your way um, from a, a goal, whether it be growing or learning, it's going to get in your way. Um, so... Yeah, I think it was determination and it was curiosity. It was, I, I didn't identify it as those things back then, but that's exactly what it was. And, and pure naked ambition at that point. Talk about, you know, the agency business. So you come, you come to San Diego um, because of your now wife and you start here and you're, you're in an agency, but, you know, knowing what's happened through the years, you know, your role at the agency changed, but also the agent, you know, the whole industry changed, but you also changed um, what your agency actually does. Yeah, so I was very fortunate. Um, and I think one of the common threads is um, 
who you do business with, who you build relationships with um, throughout life are totally either transformational or they're transformational one way or another. I was very fortunate that um, my wife's best friend's mother had this tiny little firm and her and her business partner were sort of struggling with their business. And I realized I didn't want to work for somebody at that point. And, you know, I said, give me a chair and a phone um, and let me see what I can do. Um, and it literally was open up the yellow pages. It was open up the local paper and then, oh heck, what the, what have I done? Like San Diego is this, back then was this sort of regional, I don't know, military centric town. I didn't know how to get from A to B, but we started building something at that point that was one phone call. It was one relationship. It was one employee at a time. <clears throat> and it was uh, with a woman that <clears throat> you know had a need, but sort of put her belief in me. Started an ad agency, took about five years to build a team. Um, we were a creative boutique, um, focused on doing interesting work in interesting ways, building interesting relationships with people where we were we were memorable. That was sort of chapter one. Um, and we, we were on a, a, a good run there. Um, and again, I think people and situations are catalysts for change. And I, in sort of 2006, I went to Africa and that was sort of the catalyst for change where um, it was time to think about business, life, and how I spent my time differently. So talk about that then. Um, you know, that was obviously a transformational moment what were you doing in Africa? Why were you there and what did you take away? So um, I was lucky enough to hear a guy speak um, on the impact of HIV AIDS. Um, and uh, I had a cup of coffee with this guy. And uh, I think actually, by the way, that might be a thread. What I wish I knew was, I wish I knew about coffee a lot sooner in my life because <laughs> that I get, I get teased a lot um, by my team and that is, you know, I'm always having a cup of coffee with someone. And honestly, like a big takeaway is have as many cups of coffee with as many people as you possibly can because um, it's amazing what you learn. So anyway, I had this cup of coffee with this guy and said, I don't know what it is about you, but I want to help you because you're this compelling, you know, speaker. And this subject about how HIV was ravaging Africa and, African families and such was, was shocking and interesting in a, in a strange way. So he invited me to go to this uh, small HIV conference in Johannesburg. I took uh, my business partner at the time with me, uh, dragged him along, and uh, that was the start of being aware that the world doesn't really operate like it does in California um, and how blessed we were. Um, and you know, how the impact of uh, a disease can ravage a country and how um, a, a model for care can actually make change happen. So we, we went to Malawi, was involved in another starting nonprofit that was in Malawi and got to see this organization operate alongside of local villages 
and local organizations. And that was really, it, it was more a case of, am I gonna spend the rest of my life, you know, innovating and building and creating ideas that just drive commercial value? Or am I gonna actually be able to say at some point to my kids, you know, what I did with my time made a difference in people's lives. So it was really a transformational, very fortunate experience. Um, and that was really the catalyst. I came back, my, my partner and I were sitting in the back of a, a Toyota Land Cru uh, a Toyota truck bouncing around for six hours going, how do, we, how do we take what we've learned here back and do something about it? How do you talk about AIDS? How do you, how do you, how do you share that, that as, a, as a concept where people are actually going to engage in it? And that just got both of us to think about what we were going to do with our lives. Go ahead, Sam. Yeah, so, so interestingly, Sean, I, and I just wrote this, um, these two words now about, I guess, cultural awareness and engagement. I mean, is that, you know, we talk about things I wish I knew and, and uh, a driving force in who we are. I'm getting a sense, you know, you moving, albeit with your partner, you know, from London to the US and then this trip to, to, to Africa, to a Malawi. I get the sense of that's something that, that you are and that, and that you embrace in people. Is that something you would endorse and, and enforce to those that are listening? Yeah, I think back to like being uncomfortable, um, being challenged, I think is, has been a thread. And when you get comfortable, you start challenging yourself. And then I think, in concert with that, if you just mix with the people you've always mixed with, you're likely to only ever be the person you, you are in that circle. And if you only experience culture in a, whether it's a privileged bubble or whether it's a challenged bubble, if you don't get out and see the world from a different perspective, oftentimes you can't change your own perspective. I think one, one, one thing was they say, you go to Africa and you leave a piece of yourself there. We went there thinking, okay, we're gonna, we, we're smart, we can make a difference here. And the, the, the reality was we went there and it just changed us, like unrecognizably so. And, you know, we were very privileged, I mean, to go to Africa and see and experience those things, but just being out of your comfort zone, it's a cliche, but it's so true. Sean, research these days would indicate that, you know, the younger generation entering the workforce today wants to know that their, that their work matters. You know, we, we read about younger people caring more about, you know, maybe <clears throat> the impact and the implications of the businesses that they work in than perhaps our generation did. Um, what is your advice to sort of that proverbial 22-year-old or 24-year-old early days of their career of how... How should people like that look at their work in regards to finding meaning in it? Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. I think there's, there's two, I know, not that there's two parts to the answer. There's find meaning, try to find meaning in yourself to start with. Because that whole, if you, if you don't love yourself, you can't love others. So understanding that you know, that first job, that first chat. Yes, it is about dealing with the job, whether you, like, 
life are, are these little chapters of you know development that you have so that's sort of one track um and then i think absolutely the idea of joining an organization where that organization has a purpose that is bigger than making a profit it's bigger than making a product i i think if the world's going to move forward in a meaningful way today people coming into the workforce people in the workforce people leading organizations have actually got to think about meaning so um you know had you asked me that question 20 years ago like yeah you know what it's great for meaning but that is almost like the central question that we're wrestling with today so i think first job interview um ask can we talk about your values can we talk about how this organization makes a difference and how i can contribute to that um so there's that piece of it and then there's the same set of questions to ask yourself sort of internally. So had I, back to your question, at 18, had I asked myself about values, had I asked myself, how do I want to spend my life and been lucky enough to think about meaning, I might've spent, you know, 10, 15 years differently. <clears throat> so I love the fact that that is a key question for people starting out in life. So Sean, that question and on purpose i mean you, i guess you could arguably get a generic response well here's what we put up on our values page how would you help people to kind of drive or drill down on, on that particular point and get to the i guess the true self or or, or the dna um so i think um it does start with values. Um, I think it starts with, you know, and if values are beliefs um, and they're guiding principles for how an individual or a company behaves, I think by talking about those values or reflecting on them or writing them down for oneself, you can then sort of compare those to an organization you're perhaps thinking about joining or doing business with. And it's not a test or it's, but it becomes an interesting conversation. And when I think about the most interesting people I've interviewed, whether they're, you know, early or just out of school, it gives you something meaningful to talk about. It builds a conversation. So that cup of coffee becomes not, um, you know, where were you born? Where did you go to school? What did you study? It becomes, you know, what, what guides you? You know, what do you believe in? And why are those things important to you? And therefore, who are you as a person? And those same questions, I think, apply to a company. So if you actually think about how many times you've sat and interviewed people and how dull the questions are. And it's not because the people are dull. It's because the process of communication has become rote. And you never, like, you, if you have an hour with somebody, you can determine who they are, what their heart is, what they believe in, what they think about, and then you can figure out, can you do things together? Does that individual fit into the organization? Or the friend set, or the family. You know, and that's that whole question of who, who you are is, is, a, is a big one. And, and, you know, in some ways I think like, 
in the case of young people, you know, what we're talking about in, in essence is sort of demanding of them a sense of self-awareness that many of us lacked when we were at a younger age, or maybe thought about in more narrow terms. Like I think when I was, you know, 18 or 20 years old, I, I did have a sense of, you know, right from wrong and, and basic personal values, but I hadn't really gotten to the point of extrapolating that sense of values to whatever organization that I was thinking about trying to work with or for, I should say. So we're, we're sort of maybe, it sounds like we're kind of demanding a degree of maturity that many of us didn't have. Yeah. So, so with the work we've done with U school, <clears throat> we, I don't know, came to the simple realization that, you know, my dad always said, you can't put an old head on young shoulders. Um, but I think that's a crock. Meaning um, a young head is this sponge for knowledge. It's this sponge of curiosity, or it's this vacuous, empty thing that never gets filled up with anything. You get to choose what you put on your, in your head. I, I think that school um, and the way we, we, we have historically helped to develop um, young people is that you have to figure it out. You have to go on life's journey and then you figure yourself out, which to, to many degrees is true. But self-awareness is not this thing that you just happen to develop. I think for our generation, for sure it is. And you wake up one day and you go, God, I wish I'd have known that now. And I, I think self-awareness is, is, is part of a process of reflection where you make choices about how you think about yourself. Um, so self-awareness is, is a body of work that we should be doing, you know, from five years on, um, you know, and the, and the school system should be helping us to think about how to, how to unlock the best in our in, our, in the next generation, the, shit, the, the transfer of knowledge, the transfer of emotional intelligence. Um, so once you've got self-awareness, meaning I think I have a sense of what's important to me, I think I have a sense of who I am, I think I have a sense of my weaknesses and my strengths, it doesn't mean that for the rest of your life you're, you know, you're driven by that thing, but you wake up and go, I have a sense of agency, I have a sense of who I am. That then leads to a level of self-confidence where you can start to make decisions about how, how you want to spend your time and who you want to spend it with. And that then leads to a sense of self-direction. And I think that process continues through life. So if you think about it, you know, if you've ever been in therapy, you sit there and you go through a, a process of reflection and questions, you build a sense of self-awareness and you go, well, wow. That's why I made those decisions. That's why I behaved that way. And I think it's a terrible oversimplification, but that reflection and that self-awareness gives you agency to actually make decisions in a better way. So it's a long-winded answer. Um, whereas I, you know, I think if, if as parents and, and leaders and guides and friends, we can empower and encourage younger people to actually reflect on, on who they are on a deeper level versus just filling up with intellectual knowledge, so to speak. So, Sean, a really important point that you've raised there. And again, it, you know, for, from the outside in, we look at youngsters, teenagers into their early 
early 20s. In some respects, though, they're still, like you just said, they're quite cavalier and they're still learning and, and dipping toes into water into various places. I guess two questions for them and for the older generation. How do you practice this self-awareness? And you talked earlier about loving yourself. How, do, you know, how practically can somebody listening to this right now say, hey, here, here's a couple of pointers here that I should be thinking about if I wake up in the morning or if I go to bed at night, what's what learning and messages could you give us? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I think so, you know, people get up and run in the morning cause they want to get physically fit or they, they do yoga, um, or whatever it is we do. So that, that discipline of following a regime is something that shows a level of improvement and, you know, a, a feeling of better. So that, that same discipline of <clears throat> reflection, um, you know, I mean, you can pull it from religion, you can pull it from, um, you know, yoga practices, reflecting on what's important to you, what you're grateful for, how you're going to spend your time, deliberate reflection, um, you know, to some can sound a little airy fairy or whatever, but it's, it's, I think it's appreciating that time is such a valuable commodity. And when you're 18 or when you're 25, life seems so long, right? And time is a currency that you just, it's like, woo, I'm going to spend it however I want. But, you know, all the books about successful people are they're fairly deliberate. They follow a regime. So long-winded answer, you know, it's like you wouldn't, go on, you wouldn't go on a trip without planning for it. You wouldn't go on a trip without saying, okay, how am I going to get from here to here? You can do that on a daily basis. You can do it on a weekly basis. You can do it on an annual basis. But just being a little deliberate to say, hey, who am I? How am I going to travel through the day? You know, what values am I going to bring into, what emotional fuel am I going to bring into my day? I don't know whether that answers the question or not. No, it's fascinating. And, and I feel you've touched there. I asked you the question, you know, if you were young through to, you know, second, third, a, a decade. But I think you've covered that for each. So, yeah, yeah, very valuable. Sean, you know, that, that idea of reflection, you know, is an interesting one. And the analogy I can kind of think of is that, you know, we all drive cars most every day, <clears throat> but our skill at driving cars tends not to get any better, even the more we drive. And I think part of that is the simple fact that few of us reflect on our performance as drivers right after we drive every day. We just kind of get on. And, and of course, if you know, we have a scare or something happens where we almost get an accident, maybe immediate reflection about what happened. But generally, there, we live our lives without that reflection, which then means that we probably don't you know, learn very much, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. what, you're, what you're suggesting is kind of injecting deliberate reflection in, as a regular practice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and with, with young people, the other thing I think that tends to happen is they come out of school or come out, you know, the start of their career in whatever path that they're choosing. And they, many of them have a sense of energy and a sense of, you know, an idealistic 
point of view that they can, you know, make a difference and then they get into work and they're working with older people and things move slower. Or maybe they aren't given quite the opportunities they deserve fast enough and life kind of grinds them down. So they lose that, that sense of energy or urgency or belief. Um, and yet, if they could just retain that part of it and overlay that energy with self-awareness and, and reflection as they go, they would probably be happier and, and also more effective, right? Yeah, <clears throat> I, think, I, I, I think that's certainly a part of it. And I think, you know, adjusting not one's values, but one's behaviors, depending on what one is running up against in whatever chapter of life. So <clears throat> I think you're absolutely right. You know, there are individuals and organizations that are either roadblocks, um, you know, the, what is it, the statistics? There's 20% of people turn up and they're stoked to change the world. They're amazing, they're full of energy. There's, I don't know, 60% of the population just turn up to work and they do their job. And then 20% just actively want to piss people off and mess things up. That um, you're going to meet people through career, you know, in those percentiles, and you get to choose who you are. And you get to choose whether that individual, whether they've got power or agency over you, is going to impact your progress or your life. So you always have choices. And the choice is, I'm going to ask productive questions as to why we're not moving something forward or why an idea is not at value added. Or I get to choose, and this is, you know, current circumstances aside, you get to choose, okay, I can either change departments, I can change company, I can change career. I don't, this doesn't have to be my life every single day, but I also don't have to be subjected to your negativity or your, your um, ignorance or whatever negativity you bring to my relationship with you as an employer or boss or, you know, business partner. Fascinating. So let's, let's talk about your work. I mean, we, you know, we've talked about individuals and the importance of self-awareness and reflection, but having seen what you do with clients, I feel like you bring that reflection and deliberate thoughtfulness to organizations. And so how do you, you know, in, in a monolithic sense, you know, a, a company isn't a person. Um, and many of them, even though they're legally maybe given those, those rights, they certainly don't behave that way generally. So as you look at the way that you influence your clients and that sort of thing, how do you, how do you help organizations grasp that, that who they are, that, that notion of who they are and what they should do? Um, that's a great question. So I think much like individuals, uh, people actually enjoy either talking about themselves or, <laughs> as is evidenced by this, um, or learning about themselves. So I think one of the threads in the work that we do, it's we're often brought in to solve a particular problem or to unlock an opportunity. So we're fortunate enough, enough most of the time that people are open-minded and ready to either learn or to talk about themselves, to talk about their business. And our job is really to 
create an environment where people talk about the things that really matter um, in such a way that whoever's in the room, everybody can be heard, every input can be shared. And that body of learning combined with, you know, external learnings, whether it's data research insights from the outside, are combined to create a, a level of un understanding and awareness so that you can mine that information, you can mine that knowledge to do something with it. So I think the, the very simple currency that we have is empathy um, for the individuals that we're working with and the people they serve or are building a business for, the, um, the ability to create uh, an environment where people are comfortable and confident to both share their points of view and their ideas in such a way that together that group of people are stronger than any one individual in the room. And the third is, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about the member of my team or members of my team. We're in service of the people we work for. So I think a takeaway, you know, what I wish I knew a lot earlier on in life was that being in service of others is truly where you find the best version of yourself. And we have the privilege, I think, of creating environments where whether it be momentarily, whether it be just in the life of the project, people are in service of something bigger than themselves, and that's where they learn the most. I mean, what you described there, Sean, as a kind of prescriptive approach, you know, is pretty clear. But like you go to a doctor and you get fixed pretty quick. You know, you're suggesting here that you go into a business and it's all they're either listening or they want to talk about themselves and it's all pretty well fixed. Just share with us though, you know, you're still going to get teams where there's resistors like, like you alluded to earlier, et cetera. How do you, how do you bring and kind of massage that and ensure that you get the success out of that particular business? And secondly, how do you kind of self-reflect on that in terms of, your style and behavior and what other people should be thinking in businesses who maybe are resistors? Well, thank you, Simon, for that difficult question. I think the interview is done. Um, <laughs> sure, um, I can rephrase it, you know. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm right there with you. It's, it, 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 it's never... You've done it for so many years. It's obviously, I say off pat, but you've got, you know, you've got something, well, you have got something in there because we've both worked with you. So I'm, 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 I'm curious. Yeah, no, no, it's, it, 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 it's a great question. And I, I was just going to acknowledge that it's never, nothing's that easy, right? Nothing is as easy as, well, you have a process and you follow it. Here's a set of principles that are written about in a book. And then you go out and speak about it. It's not that easy because there's people involved and there's always one or there's possibly two of them in the room always. And it's all about them. And it's either about their insecurity, it's about they want everybody to know how important they are, or they want everybody to know that their idea is the idea. And they're passive aggressive, they're quiet, and they pop their head up, and just at the right time or the wrong time. 
um, or there'll be this, the quiet one that, you know, is, is creating dissent. <clears throat> That's humanity, right? Um, so I think the way we, we acknowledge that is with respect. Um, and we actually highlight it and we use questions. Um, and I would say earlier, earlier on in my career, I used to have fun with that to highlight that in such a way that that person almost had a spotlight on them <clears throat> and they were, they'd stand there in a lonely fashion and the, that bad behavior would be so illustrated that that person would then look at me with daggers for the rest of the project. And that was very unproductive versus today it's let's ask you why why do you think that why are you quiet why do you why why do you have that question and the power of understanding where that person is coming from and showing that person the same level of respect that you do for the superstar in the room that's got all the ideas treating everybody with a level of respect so that that person's insecurity or that person's frustration and anger can actually be heard. And back to empathy, back to understanding where an individual is coming from, oftentimes what you might find is that that individual does have the answer, but they've been disrespected or not listened to, and they're so frustrated that you, they've hired an outside organization to come in and help solve the problem they've got the answer to. So as a facilitator, as a partner, as a consultant, or whatever you want to call us, if you, if you run past that person, because they might appear to be the angry one in the room, you may have lost or, or overlooked where the answer to the problem or the opportunity is. So I think it's really hard to do that, um, especially if you're having not the best of days or you, know, you got out of bed the wrong way, but serving others and listening and being empathetic is one of the currencies we need in all facets of life. And you learn that after 30 years of marriage too. Yeah. <laughs> no, fascinating, Sean. And, and that particular point of, of, you know, not necessarily using yourself, but people with their self-awareness and picking that particular point that you've just raised that I guess you're not looking at disrespecting anybody and, and keep asking the question why. I, I, I guess you ask the question why in a way as well. <laughs> Um, to get the responses out on the table like you alluded to, yeah? Yeah, and, and, I, and I think, Simon, there is, there's, a, there's a tension, right? It's, it is not about you. It is absolutely not about you. If you're in a team environment, it's about the team, and it's about the role that you play on the team. So that's one side of the equation. And then the other side of the equation it is, of course, it's all about you. It, it has to be about you because, you know, you care for yourself. You're the agent of progress in your own life, but it's the balance between how you actually show up to serve and contribute to the greater good while maintaining your sense of integrity and sense of self. And I think it's that tension as we go through life, as we mature, that we figure out, ah, you know, that kind of doesn't work. That version of me in this context, in this chapter of where we are culturally, it doesn't kind of work. And we're all figuring that out. And you know, we've hit this enormous brick wall today where we're gonna either go round it, under it, through it, we're gonna deconstruct the wall and actually be a better version of our collective selves. 
because we recognize it's not about me and it's about us, but yet it is all about me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Fascinating. So, so Sean, let's think about this and, and let's say that we're, we're perched on an, from an observation. We're looking out at this massive society and we find these apparently warring factions that have divergent beliefs about what's actually happening today. And there's a big, massive gap between the rhetoric that's expressed and the reality as many people experience it. And for many people, it's, it's depressing, it's angering, it's demoralizing, it's um, offensive. But for others, it's encouraging, it's rewarding, it's, it's, it's just an odd point in society. So if you extrapolate those lessons that you just talked about, that individuals can apply to themselves within the context of their work or their church or their school or you know, these smaller groups that they're involved in, how should we apply those lessons kind of in our role in society without going absolutely bonkers? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm sure like you guys, I think about this a lot and uh, I'm, it's there's such a, they're big, big questions. Um, and so, I think there's the absence today of the common good. So whether you're in a family, whether you're in a community, a country, a continent, there are a set of things that represent the common good. So if we could define those, we would have something to, to look at no matter which side of the political, philosophical aisles we come from and say, those elements of the common good serve humanity versus a segment of humanity. And I think you put more than three people together and everything gets complicated. And we live in a world today where information and perspectives are all on top of each other. So what we need is leadership that says, um, there is a vision of where we are going and what the future actually looks like. And to get to that future, there are, there's the common good the things that are must-dos that are gonna get us there. And then there's the clarity of mission. How are we gonna get there together, irrespective of whether you view things one way or another, but if we agree on a future vision that has the interest of everybody collectively together, we have the common good defined, and then we have a, a way to get there. Then we, talk, well, then we talk about values. And if our values are different, based on the sides of aisle or philosophies that we come from, we have some choices to make about how we, how we either bridge the gap or we include other people's values that aren't quite like ours and we start to think about what compromise looks like. And so being in service of each other towards something that is bigger than ourselves needs to get mapped out and that's what leadership I think does that's what um, perspective can create. And I think, you know, we're talking about young people and we're talking about experienced older people. And I think what needs to happen is there needs to be a cross-representation of people at the table because that young perspective doesn't have something to conserve. 
It has optimism. It has a sense of, we've never done this before. So therefore we can view how to solve this problem differently. <laughs> so I think what's interesting about what I wish I knew um, is that respecting and embracing and, and encouraging young people not to have to follow the conventions that old thoughts have actually put in place because the perspectives from both sides of the equation actually can fuel a, a vision for future, a definition of common good, how you actually go after those things. So know, it's a long rambling message, but we, we do not have that. And I think in, if you actually think about, I think about the work we do, if a company doesn't have a purpose and a leader doesn't have a vision or a leadership team doesn't have a vision, companies flail all over the place. If there aren't values that guide how people behave, you get cultural um, dysfunction. That applies to families, it applies to countries, it applies to the world we live in. Now, that's an oversimplification given all the things that you said at the beginning, because you've got political, you know, you've got religious, you've got cultural things that are all so different. But putting people in a room and working together and respecting people, gotta start doing that. So, Sean, again, I'll push back on this as well. Um, you know, they, um, I, I, I read a few days ago the quote, because the world has slowed up, our thinking has, has accelerated. Uh, a lot of what's coming out in the world right now, I think it could be, you know, an output from that. How do, again, the practical side here, how do whether it's decades, it's socio groups, it's different functional levels in, in companies, you know, what two or three practical tips would you give us? Would you say, Hey, right. If you're a business and you're a business leader, why not do this? If you're, a, um, you know, entering a new career um, and you're hanging on by your fingertips here, you know, what could you do? So what kind of practical tips could you give from that, Sean, that you've, you've seen and you've witnessed? Uh, well, Simon, another great set of questions. Um, you're, you're like the bad cop. You're like, okay, I heard all that, but now get practical. Um, that's why I've always liked working with you, Simon. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, no, it, it's one thing to philosophize. And it's another thing to be practical. Um, <clears throat> I would say um, it starts with asking the right question. You know, everything, you either make statements and declaratives and, and then people choose not to listen to you or they agree with your idea. Um, but if it's true that it's not about you, then the, the currency for solutions, the currency for learning is actually using the right question. So why are we here? What problem are we here to solve? What's important to you? Why are you frustrated? Where do you, where do you see yourself in five years time? You learn so much from asking a question. And I think we live in a world today where everybody wants to share their opinions. And, you know, an opinion is often not based on fact. It's just based on an emotional response to something. So being data-driven 
is something that used to drive me when I when I used to hear that it used to drive me nuts. It's like, well, data doesn't tell a story. Data is just you know a collection of numbers or, or facts, but questions lead to data, and data can validate either a problem, an opportunity, an issue. Um, so we need to be better about asking questions instead of making statements all the time. <clears throat> and I don't think that's the only tool. Um, along with that, shut up and listen. Um, you know, don't just ask a question and then just ramble over the top of the other person. Um, I think the other is caring about who you're in the room with. Uh, you know, if we actually started to, to you know, it's not love your, love your enemy or love your adversary, but if we understand who they are through questions, we may learn to get to that common good. So um, back to if one's interviewing for a job, uh, you'd be surprised how few people ask great questions, you know, that, that, because they haven't, they haven't been given the tools to do so. And that's people from Ivy League schools, that's people that have had years and years of education. You look at their resume, and they're incredibly impressive, but unprepared to ask interesting questions. Um, and actually dig into who you are or who the organization is. And I think that applies to whether it's political situations, community situations, because it's a rare thing that people ask questions. So Sean, on that note, if you, if you were to sort of bestow upon, you know, organization leaders, whether it's, you know, companies or nonprofits or startups or, you know, public organizations or whatever, if you were to bestow on some leaders, you know, two or three superpowers, what would you wish they would be? And, and the second part of it would be, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a dad. What would you want? What would be the two or three things that you wish your kids will have as they come into a, to adulthood or, or, you know, people in their age would, would carry with them? What sort of skills would you want them to have? Yeah. I, um, Great questions. Um, my my son and I were walking. My son's twenty three, and we were walking three or four months ago when this whole thing started. And he said to me, "Son, he said, Dad, he said, son, um, what's what's the point?" And when a when a when your twenty three year old asks you, "What's the point?" and my immediate response was, okay, mental health, uh, I, where are you with your head? Like, this is all just worthless. What, what is the point? You've worked all these years, the world's, why? And I, my answer, I, I thought about it, <clears throat> and it was, it's not what you do. It is not um, necessarily how you do it, it's who you are. So I think the first thing back to the beginning of our conversation, for my kids, for leaders of companies, for individuals, it's figure out who you are and how you show up every day, because that's really all you can, not control, but are you gonna show up with optimism? Are you gonna show up with curiosity? Are you gonna show up with kindness? 
and generosity or are you going to be the person that's pissed off and miserable? Are you going to be the person that is closed off to other people's inputs? So back to the exercise of reflection at the beginning of the day, like I think common sense brings it all the way back to you get to choose who you are. Then you get to choose how you show up. <clears throat> and so the, the, it's not advice, but it's like we do have agency over how we all show up. And when our days are numbered and like it's the last day where you get to reflect on who you were in life, a lot of us are going to regret the days that we were miserable or we wasted and how we sh who we were in the moments. So I think it's being aware of who we are in difficult situations, in the best of situations and saying, my values guide who I am consistently. So I think as, <clears throat> as leaders of companies, of people, of, of resources and what have you, we really have to be aware of who we are and how we show up in service of others every day. So to my kids, it's like, it's not about you, it's about the people you impact around you. And I think the, the, the same is true of leaders. And, and you're seeing a movement today where people are recognizing because people are being held accountable that it isn't about you. You know, you happen to be the CEO and you're a steward of billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of jobs, but we're going to hold you accountable for who you are and how you show up and how you serve others. And that's a, that's a really good thing. Wow. That's, uh, that's fantastic, Sean. Um, <clears throat> This is all really thought-provoking stuff, and I know we could uh, we could continue on forever. But I think what you've just given is, you know, is a massive gift to people about you know choosing who they are, choosing how they show up, and and choosing how they apply themselves. Those are all really powerful things. So, um, Sean, thanks so much for for joining us here today. We really appreciate you sharing your uh, your wisdom. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast, and thanks for listening to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr. Please join us at whatiwishinewshow.com. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please share what I wish I knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr with your friends. We welcome your feedback and recommendations of new podcast guests and ideas on topics. If you have business challenges, we're also available for advisory and consulting roles. We'd be delighted to listen and help. Just send us an email. Our address is hello at whatiwishinewshow.com.